This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of April 17, 2017, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 325 of Defender Radio. I hope you had an awesome long weekend and got some spend of time with your family, friends, and the furry ones you share your home with. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to announce the winner of our last contest. Throughout the week, we asked you to leave a review of Defender Radio on our Facebook, Stitcher, or iTunes pages, and then send us a screenshot. This really helps more people hear about the podcast, the work of the fur bears, and the messages our guests have. Dozens of people responded, and I can't thank you enough. Even though the contest is over, please do keep leaving reviews with honest comments, because this certainly won't be our last contest. The winner this time was Karen Nelson of Alberta. Thank you for your wonderful review and all you do for the animals, Karen. We'll be in touch via email to get you your give-a-damn t-shirt ASAP. Witnessing the northern lights dance across an open arctic sky. Watching a grizzly mother teach her cubs to fish for the first time and feeling the solitude of a cold morning in the far north may be things few of us will ever experience. But thanks to John Marriott, we're getting closer than we ever have. John is an accomplished wildlife photographer who also leads photography tours across Canada's wilderness. But in recent years, he's taken his growing popularity and success and become an advocate for the animals. Most notably, John has started a video web series titled Exposed with John E. Marriott. The combination of incredible videography and photography, along with insightful commentary on issues related to his subjects, often wolves and bears, creates an experience for the viewers that is difficult to describe. His most recent adventure, and the launch of the second season of Exposed, focuses on what he calls ice grizzlies. Bears who visit a perpetually running stream in the far northern reaches of the Yukon. John joined Defender Radio to discuss the Exposed series, his latest trip, ethical photography, why advocacy has become an important and rewarding part of his career, and answer questions from the Defender Radio audience. You're doing the second season of Exposed, and I, I think the obvious place to start is why you started this video series. I mean, you're, you're a very successful wildlife photographer. Um, what led you to take this sort of next step? Uh, I think there were a couple of different factors that led to the start of Exposed. Number one was that there were some issues that I wanted to tackle, um, not just through my photography, but also be able to get it out to a sort of a broader audience than and what I traditionally reach through books and uh, magazine articles and things like that. So it was a way to kind of get out on the web. Um, we looked at, at producing a TV show. Uh, in fact, that's still in the works and may still happen. Um, but in the meantime, this was a really good way to sort of tackle YouTube and Facebook and uh, Twitter and Instagram and utilize the video capabilities there and be able to start getting some messages out. And then at the same time, we wanted to intermix in there a bit of the adventure uh, side of things and show mm-hmm. people a little bit about, you know, what it's like to be a wildlife photographer and go on these crazy adventures that cost normal people, uh, you know, 10 or 15 or even $20,000 to go for a week and photograph grizzlies off in the middle of nowhere or wolves off in the Arctic or, or whatnot. 
So that was kind of a kind of a two pronged approach. We wanted to cover a bit of the adventure, but also be able to reach a wider audience with uh, with some of the messages. Uh, you know, we've tackled the wolf call in BC and the grizzly trophy hunt, uh, the wolf call in Alberta as well. Uh, we've got an upcoming episode about Banff National Park and about our national parks in general and how they're kind of under siege right now. Um, you know, ecological integrity is being challenged uh, throughout the park. So kind of got all sorts of different angles going on. We just thought that a web series was one of the best ways to be able to be sort of multi-pronged like that and uh, tackle all sorts of different things. Well, and I think it's been, like, from my perspective, it looks like it's been highly successful. I mean, it is, it's, it's your stunning photography mixed in with um, sort of the... Uh, I, I was trying to explain it to my wife, and I said it's kind of like at the end of the BBC Nature documentaries where they show sort of the how they got the shots. Um, it's that really unique opportunity to see, and, and this most recent one of you sitting and not doing anything for days at a time um, to, to really put into perspective what goes in to getting these these one second shots or, you know, um, some of the video clips you have. And again, it reminds me of the, you know, the BBC earth series, just the, the incredible, uh, footage that you guys are getting. Um, but knowing that it's taking days upon days of sitting and waiting and you really, I don't think can get that in the written word or in photos. Like you said, like you have to do that through video. Yeah, that's right. I think, uh, you know, you can write about it all you want and, uh, People can read it, but to actually see it on a screen, um, they, they sort of get to experience it a little bit, and it's uh, you know puts puts it more into perspective that you know you can have someone read the words that oh you know I sat in minus twenty for five straight days and saw nothing, um, but to actually see us yeah. in the video over and over sitting there, and you can tell it's cold and. It's the forced smile. <laughs> it's yeah, the forced smile, and they, you know, <laughs> you know, we still haven't seen anything. Yeah. So, you know, trying to stay optimistic. Yeah, but, uh, um, yeah there were definitely uh, that, that that ice grizzlies trip was definitely a little challenging, uh, and uh, and a lot of the trips are. You know, you, some of the trips are great. You know, I've got, for instance, I do a, a grizzly bear trip in the Chilcotin in BC, where you know we sometimes see. 35, even 40 grizzly bears in a day. So it's it's kind of the exact opposite. You know, every corner you go around, you go, oh, we're going to photograph this grizzly or that one. (laughs) But uh, some of the trips and some of the projects I work on are definitely uh, patience is a real key. And I think uh, that's a nice compliment from you to say that it reminds you a bit of the behind the scenes of the uh, Planet Earth uh, series from BBC, because that's kind of the pinnacle of wildlife uh, videography. Oh, absolutely. And and personally, I put you on that plane in terms of the photography uh, as well. Uh you uh you tweeted a picture um uh was I guess it was while you were still up there probably or when you had just come home. And it was a uh, it was one of your shots of the northern lights. And he said, "Oh, this is all I got today." And posted I'm like, "I I would murder someone to be able to take that picture and or see that." And you you're just kind of like, Mleh. Um, so to me, that kind of <laughs> your attitude about a gorgeous photo, uh, to me kind of indicates sort of what you expect of yourself and what we're used to seeing from you as well. Um, but that, that was, uh, amusing to me, but one of the things I, I really enjoyed, and you mentioned sort of taking people along with you on the adventure of doing this. Uh, I was, when I watched the video and every time I get to this point and you say, you're, you know, we're waiting for the go ahead from the helicopter pad and it's cold looking. Uh, I guess this is when you were in Dawson, uh, in, in the Yukon and, 
um, waiting for it. And uh, the helicopter you can see coming down. And you say, well, it's clear now, so I guess we'll give it a go. And every time, out loud, I say, nope. Because if you have to say, I guess we'll give it a go about getting on a helicopter, I'm out. I'm going home and I'm putting on Netflix. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I guess at that point, it, 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 to give you a little insight into what we were all thinking. So, you know, you've got myself and three other photographers who are uh, basically buddies of mine. They've been on uh, all sorts of different trips with me and stuff. Um, and we're sitting and we're waiting there in Dawson City. Um, and we know we've got a long helicopter flight ahead of us. And we know the weather does not look good for the next few days. And so when the, we get out to the helicopter pad and the pilot says, well, you know, we'll give it a go, we're, we're all kind of, hey, if he thinks we can give it a go, we'll <laughs> give it a go. So we want to get in there. We don't, you know, we paid all our money already. So <laughs> we're just like, we don't, we don't want to have a trip that's three days shorter. We want to get in there now. So we were all uh, kind of going, oh, we'll take our chances. You know what? It's just a helicopter and a bunch of snow and mountains and stuff. You know, what, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> I'm pretty sure we saw what the worst that can happen is in a few movies, but... Um... <laughs> Exactly. We won't get into that because that gets a little uncomfortable to talk about on a podcast. <laughs> How ready yeah. are you? Um, and I, I thought it was so. The area you went to is the, and I'm I'm certain I'm going to say this wrong. As the Vuntut Gwich'in First Nations, um, it's a territory they co-manage with the government uh, called Bear Cave Mountain. And yeah, that's could, right. you ex- could you explain? How, it, it, I, I listened to you say it three times and I said, I get it. And then I tried to write it down and I said, I don't get it. Um, <laughs> so you're, you're, I mean, you look around the scenery and it's, it's a frozen, it's you're in the Arctic circle. Um, I, I would guess you're not too far away from the tundra at that point, uh, which is more or less desolate, but there's this beautiful bubbling Creek uh, or, or river. Uh, could you explain sort of what that is, how that happens? Yeah, so the so the area that we went to is called uh, Fishing Branch Territorial Park, and uh, the, the specific area within the park that we went to was called Bear Cave Mountain, and it is a, a park that's jointly managed by the Vuntukwitsin, like you said, the First Nations and the Yukon government. Uh, and there's several of these territorial parks throughout the Yukon and uh, and also throughout the Northwest Territories. Um, this particular one has uh, a unique limestone formation uh, and there's this river fishing branch river that flows over this uh, limestone that's got porous karst in it and there's thermal springs underneath so there's actually a big stretch of this river that despite being on the arctic circle does not freeze uh, during the winter even though temperatures get down minus 35 minus 40 quite regularly Um, while we were there they were between minus 20 and minus 25 most of the time but so you're seeing this you know, wintry landscape, and yet you've got this river flowing through it that doesn't have very much ice on it at all, um, and it's because of these thermal springs underneath. And so you've got uh, salmon that are coming up from the Bering Sea a couple thousand kilometers, um, and they're getting to this stretch uh, specifically to spawn here in late fall. And that was sort of the, that's the attractant that brings bears in, and brings grizzly bears in, and that's what we were there for. Yeah, and it's interesting that you you noted that they they've come to know this for thousands of years, and the bears return every year, year over year over year. Um, is that something you think that's just passed down generation to generation? Uh, like, is there any theory on why the bears keep coming back to this one spot? Well, I think I mean the the 
theory is pretty much proven, and that's the salmon. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's the food source. So they, uh, but yeah, I think it is passed on generation to generation to generation. In fact, this year um, was the first year that uh, they have seen Cubs of the Year uh, be brought in there, as you see in my pictures and in the video. We've got a, a young, youngest ten-year-old female grizzly bear called uh, Sophie and she's got her two cubs of the year with her little fluff balls yeah. that follow her around everywhere and uh, Sophie has brought cubs in in the past but older cubs in, and then they have returned on their own um, so it, it definitely is something that now I think moving forward you know three four five years down the road I think the guides there will be seeing Sophie's cubs returning and then somewhere down the line maybe cubs of Sophie's cubs mm-hmm. returning and so on uh, down the line, and I think that literally probably has been going on for thousands of years, according to uh, the witch and oral history. Um, this is something they've always known grizzly bears to be here, um, and it, it is a, a pretty interesting area. You kind of alluded to it in the previous question, and that's that um, you know when you look at the video, uh, there's Bear Cave Mountain, which is quite a nice sort of jagged little mountain with uh, you can actually see little caves in there that the uh, bears hibernate in. Um, pretty tough to see from the ground, but you can sort of see them with binoculars and stuff when you're looking at them. But everywhere else around is actually forest. And the tundra that everybody expects to be up near the Arctic Circle and stuff is probably about 100 kilometers away um, to the west. Um, So we're actually at a big stretch of boreal forest that stretches quite far north and crosses the Arctic Circle. Um, So we actually see moose, uh, saw pine marten. We were hoping to see wolf and wolverine, but uh, didn't get lucky at all, despite sitting out there for six, seven, eight hours uh, a day, uh, hoping to spot uh, something beyond just the grizzlies and the moose and the pine marten and the northern lights Mm. and all that great stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Just some of the most beautiful things in the world, but yeah. Yeah, you know. (laughs) Uh, and the, the time-lapse, again, the Northern Lights, the time-lapse video is one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. I've seen the Northern Lights once when I lived uh, in the Ottawa Valley, um, and it was very, very faint, and it was the very sort of simple green and blue hues, sort of in and out. But that time-lapse, it's like snakes going across the sky. It's it's remarkable. What's it like to be sitting there and just, and I, I think there is a photo where you're in the sort of the bottom right corner, and then just this the, the rest of it is just sky with these these lights dancing. How do you feel when you look up and see that? Oh, it's uh, it was truly spectacular. And I, I've seen Northern Lights quite a bit. I've been fortunate enough to um, not only see them near my home in Canmore, Alberta, in the Rockies here, um, but I've been in the Arctic quite a bit and up north quite a bit at prime time for, uh, for the Aurora, which is often sort of March, April, and then again, September, October. Um, and, uh, up there in particular was, uh, you know, we had a couple of nights where even someone like me that's probably seen the Northern Lights a couple of hundred times, I was just constantly yelling out and <laughs> going, oh my gosh, look at that. And look yeah. behind us. Oh, look over there. Oh, gee. Cause it was literally just all over the sky yeah. floating and shimmering and, uh, Absolutely stunning stuff to see. Um, and that, that shot that you mentioned where I'm kind of in the bottom right corner and the, the lights are up above me and stuff, I uh, you know, I set up my tripod and stuff and I've got a timer going that's taking uh, images every uh, five or ten seconds. I think at that point I was doing every ten seconds. And uh, I just walked out 
waded out into the river in front of me and put myself into the shot. So, you know, you, literally the the lights were so good that you could plan stuff like that and uh, and do all sorts of different things. I mean, I I came home with thousands of shots to Northern Lights, and some of those time lapses are were. Um, they were actually the northern lights were actually so good that one of the fellows there was actually videoing the northern lights, which is extremely rare to be able to do. Um, usually, they're just not bright enough for it to show up on video. Um, so, time lapse is normally what we do, where we just take picture after picture after picture and then stitch them together afterwards to form a little video. And he was actually able to capture like thirty frame per second video. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. how that's how bright they were and how vivid they were yeah. on a couple of the nights up there. Well, and again, that one shot we're talking about, but um, and of course that's available on your Facebook page, um, uh, John E. Marriott Photography, and exposed with John Marriott, um, and that yep. one shot it puts it in perspective, I think, and that's kind of what, like, it's one of those things. It's so big you can't really understand it. It's like someone said, what does a kajillion dollars look like? I have no idea. I know it, I know it's a number. I know it's a thing. But, you know, even if you showed me maybe a pile of money and said, that's a kajillion dollars, I'd say, okay, it's cool. But then when you put that person in the corner, all of a sudden you get perspective on just how magnificent it is and how all-encompassing it is. Um and I think, too, that's what was really interesting. There is one shot, and you talk about this in the video. Uh, I believe it was Sophie and her, her cubs uh, came towards a little sort of inlet that you were sitting at. And they didn't really seem that interested yeah. in you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, to me, this sort of opens up a couple of things to talk about. One is why you didn't engage with them or, or try and move around or anything. Like, you can see the video of you. I guess you had a videographer behind you and kind of slowly panned mm-hmm. out to get the shot, and you were not moving. Um, and then, of course, um, what does that mean? I mean, we, we were constantly told that grizzly bears are going to kill us at every chance they get, uh, if you believe the guide outfitters yeah. and, and uh, one Ms. Clark in British Columbia. So... I, let's let's start with the the why you didn't engage. Uh, I think, and we we can kind of go more into that as well later on. But when those bears start coming towards you, why did you not run away screaming and peeing yourself like I would, um, or try and shift around and get a better shot? Why did you stay so still and just sort of get what you could? Well, one of the one of the things you really want to try to do when you're viewing grizzly bears, um, particularly in a situation like that where you're on foot with them is to allow the bear to know exactly what you're going to do at all times. Um, So the guides there have it set up. We go into a very specific spot. Um, We sit in that spot. Uh, The bears know we're going to be sitting in that spot so they can decide if they're going to come close or not. Um, Sophie was very comfortable and would come very close to us. Um, Like you see in that clip, she comes to probably ended up about uh, seven or eight feet away from me. Um, So which probably sounds ridiculous to most people thinking how on earth does somebody let a grizzly bear get seven or eight feet away from them, especially, especially one with cubs. But again, just using um, knowledge of animal behavior, knowledge of bear behavior, um, you know, it's a complete farce. It's a myth that's out there that grizzly bears are these ferocious creatures that are just looking for a chance to kill you um, and that they're going to, you know, attack us at every opportunity. Um, you know, the truth is that uh, grizzly bears are just like humans. They're just like dogs. You can figure out uh, different behaviors with them. You can figure out different individuals. Um, the guides know Sophie very well in this case. 
And they knew that, you know, if Sophie was going to decide to come over near us if we just sat still and let her know what our behavior was going to be, which was very minimal movements, no talking, um, maybe very, very light, quiet talking uh, to her from the guide, um, that she would just go about her business and do her thing. And so we had a trust in the guides. Um, myself, I've been around grizzly bears and I've been guiding uh, for grizzly bears since 1997 uh, in photography circumstances. So I was very familiar with how to act uh, and just let her do her thing. And I just stayed perfectly still. And uh, you can see I just barely moved my camera lens about an inch or so. But I, you know, I didn't try and reach for another camera or try and change my angle or any of that. You just let the bears do what they're going to do and uh, you soak in the experience. And, you know, it's something that uh, I think is one of the real things that people that get to go on these trips, um, you know, whether you get to go to the Kutzmatine in British Columbia or up to a place like this or uh, to Night Inlet on the BC coast, uh, when you get to see grizzly bears up close, it really does change your attitude uh, towards them. And you sort of get over this whole guide outfitter thing of they're these ferocious beasts that uh, it's just simply not really true. Um, you know, a lot of the fear that bears have uh, of humans uh, is what ends up uh, resulting in aggression um, because they're actually afraid of us. Mm-hmm. If you take away the guns and you stop shooting them all the time, um, <laughs> bears actually are, are quite uh, quite manageable, you know, as long as you have some knowledge of, uh, of behavior and you allow them to be able to predict what you're going to do. Um, yeah, you can see in, in bear viewing operations throughout BC and the Yukon and Alberta and so on, uh, there's actually never been an attack. Not one. So. Really does make you wonder then when they talk about how dangerous they are. If we have people going out regularly and getting close to bears regularly, um, you know, why, why do we think that they're so dangerous? Um, although, of course, I think that probably comes from some photographers too. Um, you know, and that's a conscious decision that, uh, as the person who does digital media for the fur bears, um, and obviously for the podcast that I, I make is if we want to use a picture of a grizzly bear and I look up our, our stock or the stuff you've sent us or other photographers have sent us, I can choose one of, you know, a grizzly bear doing what grizzly bears do, or I can choose one of, you know, a grizzly bear standing on its hind legs and roaring. And when you look to the to the popular media or traditional media, it's very frequently the latter. They choose that one where the grizzly bear looks frightening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do a, and it creates that situation. Yeah, I do want to clarify that, uh, you know, grizzly bears are dangerous animals. They do deserve a tremendous amount of respect. <laughs> um, but yes. knowing their behavior and, uh, and allowing them to predict what your own behavior is going to be um, does you know, provide some leeway to be able to to view them and photograph them. Um, you know, that said, I've you know, if I drive out into my backyard here uh, and go into Banff National Park uh, and I see a grizzly bear on the side of the road, I'm not jumping out of my car and walking over to it seven or eight feet away. You know, that's the exact wrong yeah. idea. I want to get out there. I mean, these are very special circumstances with bears that are very well known. Um, you know, if I go and I see a grizzly bear off the side of the road or something, generally I'm staying in my vehicle and I, I'm photographing right from the vehicle. Um, so it's just different yeah. circumstances. Uh, you know, when you go up to a place like that and the guides know the bears all personally and individually, know their behavior, uh, the bears also know the, the guides. Um, there's a lot more interaction that can happen and can be safe. 
Yeah. Well, and that's I. I would say that's even the same as when I'm walking down the street and I see a dog I don't know. Exactly. It's very very important. Um, yeah. 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 See, I I'll say, can I say hi? Or frequently I'll ignore them because a dog on leash, you know, very frequently shouldn't be addressed directly. But if they seem friendly, I'll ask, can I see your dog? Can I say hi? And if they say yes, at that point, I'll approach. And it's all of those things that we know, you know, be calm, be quiet, uh, let them check you out first, all of those things that you apply. And I guess it's it's that same thing. It's because I don't know who this dog is or how they'll react to me. Uh, and they don't know who I am either. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, so it makes sense to sort of treat it with a little bit of reasonable caution. Absolutely. Um, although I'll give you 20 bucks in a beer if you can get a grizzly bear to hug me for a photo and not kill me. <laughs> think that'll happen. <laughs> All right. uh, I made the offer. It's on you now. Um, and then I think this moves nicely. And I, I, I want to talk about uh, a subject that you've talked a lot about, I know, uh, is baiting. And I think this kind of, it plays nicely into this. Um, uh, as we're talking about the, the bears coming close and everything. Um, my most recent exposure to this was a, a young man who um, had... Uh, he actually ended up getting threatened, I think. I'm not sure if you saw this blog that we did. Uh, I talked with him about. He, uh, in the Ottawa area, um, saw a bird photography club or a group of people trying to photograph birds. And it's I put together an image that I think kind of told the story. As you see, the photographer's in the bottom left and the bird in the top right in the tree. And then in the middle, in the standard photo, you can't really see. But the zoomed-in version, you can see they've got a mouse in a jar. Um, and they're baiting the bird to try and get him to come down and get the shot. This young man posted about it um, and, and actually got threatened with lawsuits and things like that after complaining about it. Um, so we, of course, blurred the photographer's faces and all that. But baiting is something that I'm seeing coming up very frequently. And you had a very um, uh, a bold, uh, clean line on the ethics uh, about baiting. And one of them was, I think, uh, a shot of an owl recently where you explained how you could tell it was baited. So let's start at the beginning. And why is baiting, whether it's birds or, or mammals, bad for a photographer? Why is it a bad practice? I think first and foremost, because it's putting the needs of the photographer ahead of the needs of the animal. Um, so I often hear photographers trying to justify things going, well, you know, it's just one mouse or it's just, oh, you know, it's helping out the owl or it's helping out the the bear or whatever, you know, giving it a bit of food. Well, that's simply not how nature works. You know, nature takes care of its own and uh, uh, the owls and the bears and so on get their own food. Um, so for me, it really comes down to the photographer putting their desire to get the shot ahead of um, the needs of the animal. Um, and to me, it's a very selfish act from photographers and, uh, it, it's not really wildlife photography to me. You know, you, you may be taking a wild animal, but you're purposefully food conditioning it, um, which can be extremely dangerous for the animal moving forward, regardless of what type of animal it is, whether it's a bird uh, or a mammal. Um, because once an animal is food conditioned, you know, there's an old saying, a fed bear is a dead bear. It's the same for an owl. Fed owl is a dead owl. Uh, eventually, those animals are going to get hit on a road. They're going to come too close to people. They're going to go to a farm or something where they get shot. Uh, you know, just eventually, uh, animals, they get food conditioned. And I want to differentiate to food conditioning and habituation are two different things. Just because an animal gets used to coming close to people or adapts to living near people, 
um, like my most recent book on the pipestone wolves uh, in Banff National Park, which are wolves that have adapted to live near people, um, but they were never food conditioned. They wouldn't come up to people looking for a handout. They wouldn't come up to a car window. So there's a big distinction between the two. Because as soon as an animal becomes food conditioned, then they do associate people with food. And that's where it gets so dangerous for them, where they, um, you know, every time they see a person, then they're they're looking at that person as a food source. And not all people are friendly. Not all people are just going to take your picture. Um, You know, the next one's going to, might have a gun and shoot it. Um, So to me, uh, baiting an owl is, you know, not only is it cheating, it's unethical. Um, and I think it's really pushing the photographer's needs ahead of those of the animal. And uh, so I refrain from baiting or calling or putting out scents or anything at all. I just prefer things to be as natural as possible. And of course, wildlife photography is never completely natural because you're inserting a human into the, the landscape and the animal, you're, you're, every picture you get is behavior of that animal in one way or another reacting or not reacting to a human being there but uh but we are a natural part of the landscape um it is not natural for us to be feeding those animals though um, so that's where i really draw the line and so you know to be a to be a true wildlife photographer um it's my own belief that you you just do things as naturally as possible yeah, and I think, you know, that's, uh, again, looking at the work you've done through Exposed Watching, how you set up, uh, watching, again, m- much of the BBC series, uh, which and if any of our listeners have not seen, uh, I think you and I would both highly recommend yeah. it. It's, it's beautiful, um, and as far as I can tell, it is normally very ethically done. Um, and I, I think, too, what was really interesting is it was on Twitter – uh, I, I was sort of watching you and someone else talk about this, a photo, and I, I think it was in a magazine, and um, you were saying that's a baited picture, and they're saying, how can you tell? Um, and you explained sort of just how how it was set up to you, indicated that it, it was almost too good. Um, yeah, there was an owl, an owl flying straight at the camera, um, you know, perfect light, uh, looking right up towards the photographer. Uh, you know, owls just don't normally fly right at a photographer or, or very rarely. It, it has happened. I've had a great gray owl fly over top of me before where if I'd gotten a shot of it, I didn't <laughs> didn't react quickly enough. But if I'd gotten a shot of it, it would have looked like it was flying right at me. Um, so when generally what, what you see nowadays because of the proliferance of, uh, of baiting, proliferation of baiting out there right now, um, Generally, when a photographer like me gets a, a great shot of an owl looking right at the camera in flight or, or uh, similar shots like that, uh, we specifically post that it's not baited. Yeah. Wild, unbaited, uncalled. I do the same thing with all my wolf photos because wolves are another species that um, gets photographed a ton, either baited or more commonly uh, game farm animals, which are basically just models that live in a cage. And most of the wolf calendars you see out there are all these, they're not actually wild wolves, they're wolves that live in a cage that are brought out to model in a particular location and take the shot. And so it's actually, you know, for most people that love wolves and owls and stuff, to find this stuff out is uh, quite disheartening. But then they can come and look at a photographer like myself and go, okay, well, at least I know everything he's shooting is wild. And so you can quickly flip through a photographer's portfolio and very quickly find out whether they're 
shooting mostly wild stuff or if it all sort of looks too good to be true. Um, and, and you can also tell from just the stance the photographer is taking, you know, even in their captions or in, on Facebook, you know, if they seem to be definitely involved with environmental issues and so on, then often they're the type of photographer that is shooting all wild and unbaited. Yeah, and speaking of environmental issues, this is something that you, you have been very vocal about, again, both through the Exposed series, simply on your Twitter and Facebook pages, um, but talking about some of these issues, uh, particularly of um, large animals or large carnivores, uh, bears and wolves uh, being killed or caught, the trophy hunts. Um, I've got sort of two questions, and this this plays into post one of my questions and one that we got from, from a listener, um, is at what point in your career did it seem to become necessary to you to start speaking out? Um, and... On top of that, how will these ongoing hunts, be it the grizzlies in, in either of our western provinces, uh, wolves in either of our western provinces, uh, coyote calls right across the country, how does that impact your work uh, to, to sort of photograph nature in nature? So to start, at what point did you decide you had to start engaging publicly on these issues? Uh that's a good question because I, before or at, as I was getting into photography in the early 1990s, kind of a sort of before slash as I was, because um, it was right when I first started um, photographing with any sort of a lens or anything, but it still was by no means even close to being a professional. Um, but right at that point, I was working for Parks Canada and uh, it was what's called a heritage communicator or a naturalist or an interpreter as people know them now uh, within parks. So someone that would pass along messages to the public. Uh, so I would do guided hikes and do slideshows and that sort of thing and talk about the park. And I remember very early on a couple of the talks that uh, some of my colleagues were giving were, you know, always had a bit of a bend to them, uh, you know, a, an angle that talked about conservation or talked about you know, some of the troubles some of these animals might have. And soon after that, I started writing a column called Carnivore Conservation um, for the local paper. And that was sort of my first spin at, uh, you know, taking a look at conservation issues within the parks, let alone outside the parks. And I think that sort of started getting me thinking about things. You know, at that point, I was also just finishing up my degree in wildlife management uh, and, you know, sort of it's kind of all snowballed along, but in a, in a slow manner. So as I started getting my photography rolling uh, through the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, at that time, you kind of have to just concentrate on doing photography, because if you're trying to do anything else, you don't have enough money to pay your rent. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I think it was probably mid-2000s where I really started to get, you know, so this would be 12, 13 years ago, I really started to see, okay, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get well-known enough in photography that maybe I can start turning my eye a little bit back towards some conservation issues. And I, I think really in the last five or six years, that has really taken off where I've been able to devote a large portion of my career now towards um, fighting things like the wolf culls, uh, the coyote culls, the grizzly bear hunt, 
um, just sort of being an advocate for wildlife out there and being as much of a voice as I can be and utilizing the fact that I've built up this big following on social media. Uh, and to me, that's kind of, it's almost more important in my career than anything else at this point. Um, you know, I make a, a healthy living. I, I, I know if I went out and you know, maybe I could open a series of galleries and maybe I could be doing three books a year and all this kind of stuff. But to me right now, it's more important to actually be putting most of my time and effort back into conservation. Um, and I still get to go out there and photograph and stuff, but, uh, um, which I still love, but, Basically, everything that I work on now is a project related in one way or another to conservation. So to me, that's kind of kind of come full circle because that's what my degree sort of was in to start with. Um, and now I get to, to work on these issues um, and really get to help educate people, which to me is one of the big things. I think there's a lot of half-truths and lies that are out there regarding wildlife management in this country. Um and we haven't really been doing a very good job of it. Um, well, and that's certainly something that I, I'm trying to, I, I'm, I'm trying to find a couple of experts to really dig into the um, North American model of wildlife conservation, um, which, as you likely know, is very much that wildlife is in some magical way both a a, a resource held for the public trust, so protected and maintained for all of us. But at the same time, a resource that must be used yes. um, through hunting, fishing, agriculture, whatever. Um, yes. And that is the basis of virtually all policy in North America, yes. uh, which to me has a significant flaw right down the middle of it. Uh, and I imagine for you, when, when you did start looking at speaking out more, there must have been a worry in the back of your mind of how is this going to impact the business of photography? Yeah, I um, Because... It's something I see, you know, I, I talk about, uh, obviously I've got a, a rather strong bias on these issues, um, but I will even reach out to nonprofits to come on the podcast and I know very well, and they're very polite about it. And they say, we're not able to participate at this time, but they look at what we do, recognize that we're opposed to, for example, fur trapping and know that some of their people are fur trappers or, or may see a benefit to it, or they're living in a county where it's a common occurrence and don't want to get involved. Um, so I imagine for you as well, as someone who's, who's going out there into the wild, who's trying to sort of earn a living on this, that was a nagging thought. Oh, for sure. It's been a, a nagging thought all along um, and continues to be is, you know, how hard can I push uh, before I start to turn away followers and fans and I've kind of got to the point now where I realize that I, I can probably push as hard as I want um, you know there are people that uh, a lot of people out there that agree that our wildlife management using this North American based management model is not uh, I don't think necessarily most people even know what that is but using this model where our wildlife is a resource that has to be used um, and has to be managed um, I think is something that a lot of people are starting to realize that has some major holes and flaws in it. Um, and I don't necessarily have the perfect system to move to, but I can certainly educate people on what these flaws are with the current system and, uh, and point those out. And I think, um, you know, that's kind of why I said in the timeline of my career, you know, the last five or six years where I've gotten to a pretty comfortable spot financially, um, that I'm able to take chances now 
uh, and I do lose clients. I lose not only clients, but in I'm quite outspoken on issues around Bath National Park, uh, and I've been on a couple of boards and committees and stuff, and it's lost me business within town. You know, I've had stores that have kicked me out that won't carry my books anymore or cards anymore. And for me at this point in my career, I guess it's just that's something I have to live with, but I'm okay with it. Uh, and I'm willing to take those chances uh, because I think that, uh, you know, if someone like me is not going to stand up and speak out, then who is going to? Um, so I think it's part of being a wildlife photographer in today's day and age is, uh, you know, if you want to be a truly successful wildlife photographer, part of that is speaking up on behalf of, uh, of the wildlife and taking real part in the conservation issues and uh, taking up the fight and trying to educate people, you know, do we, it's all sorts of different issues out there. Do we really need to be culling wolves? Do we really need to be trapping lynx and bobcat all over the country? You know, there's all sorts of different things that, that we can touch on. Um, and yet at the same time, I'm what I, I guess, self-call myself a hardcore moderate uh, in the sense that I, I, I still think there's a place for hunting in the country, definitely for people <laughs> putting food on the table. Uh, I still think even that there's a place for some trapping mm-hmm. in the country, which you know would probably go against what most people would think uh, of me. But at the same time, it's it would be very specific. You know, don't think there's any need for us to be out there snaring wolves all over the country, uh, or or coyotes, or uh, or lynx, or bobcat, or so. It, you know, I'm. I'm a moderate in some sense, but pretty hardcore in other sense. There's probably trappers and hunters might listen to this and go, oh, that guy's hardcore. Hardcore anti. But, uh, yeah, oh, the anti. I that bugs me so much. <laughs> but but uh, we're, we're going on a tangent now. So we're going we're gonna to circle back to photography. Uh, one of the things, obviously, with the election in BC that's come up um, in our circles, maybe not in the mainstream media, is the concept of ecotourism uh, with the grizzly bear hunts. And there's a lot of talk and not a lot of study yet. I know I've seen a couple of references, but not a lot, that um, uh, ecotourism that's non-consumptive, so that by that we mean, you know, bear viewing, photography tours, uh, so on and so forth, generate more income, provide more jobs, and have a higher tax return for the province than trophy hunting or any kind of consumptive hunting practices uh, in that tourism sector. Um, and I'm wondering for you, is that a concern when you're planning a tour to take people out, um, or you yourself are going out on one of your, your adventures, um, that you're going to come across people who are hunting, um, or that that could impact the number of animals available for you to take a, a, a photo of? That's a great question because, um, right now the BC government and the Guide Outfitters Association and the BC Wildlife Federation are all claiming that bear viewing and bear hunting are compatible activities. And yet I run a company that specifically goes out looking for not only bears to view, but also to photograph for, for weeks at a time, often, uh, big money. Um, you know, people are paying five, six, seven, eight thousand $8,000 a week, uh, to come with me. That Yukon trip was almost $20,000 to come with me on that one, uh, for, for 10 days of photography. Um, did you provide and- hot coffee? Yeah, and a hot chocolate, yeah. Um, And yet, a company like mine, I specifically go way out of my way to make sure there is absolutely zero chance uh, that we can run into hunters or that areas have even been hunted. Um, 
because that just simply can't happen with clients. Uh, so in other words, I have to pick out either areas where hunters can't get into or protected areas like the Kutsmutin uh, or the Chilcotin area where I go where the First Nations don't allow grizzly bear hunting. Um, those are areas where I, I have to very specifically find these areas. So personally, I believe there's, there's probably dozens and maybe even hundreds of areas in British Columbia where there could be bear viewing. But it's just impossible to do right now with with hunting um, because you cannot set up an operation and then bring tourists in and have them see a bear get shot or have them see a truck drive by with a grizzly hanging out the back. Um, And in fact, there's a very real example of this uh, with a friend of mine, uh, Julius and Kristen Strauss owned a little ecotourism lodge in the East Kootenays in British Columbia, Southeast Kootenay area. Um, and it's called the Grizzly Bear Ranch, and they originally ran ran a spring and fall grizzly bear viewing uh, near their ranch. And unfortunately, the spring hunt was extended and more tags given out, um, despite their protests with the provincial government in British Columbia, saying that it would kill their bear viewing business. And sure enough, the first year they went out with this extended hunting season uh, with clients, um, they kept running into hunters and just immediately pulled the plug saying, we can't have these people seeing bears get shot. Yep. And uh, so $80,000 down the drain, uh, and it costs them, costs them $80,000 every spring to not have that open right now. And that's just a little tiny two-person bear viewing operation. Uh, so you can imagine what would happen with something like, say, Night in Light Lodge, which is you know anywhere from 20 to 30 staff and anywhere from 24 to... 30 people in there at a time. Uh, if all of a sudden hunters showed up and were allowed to shoot the grizzlies that these people are viewing, uh, you know, it would take a $15 million business and just instantly uh, crash it into being worth nothing. Uh, yep, so it's yep. just simply, they're just simply not compatible. And so a company like mine, I have to go and look for protected areas where there's no hunting. Um, so right now, um, it makes absolutely no sense from, from an economic standpoint, a financial uh, look at it. Ecotourism simply is worth more uh, when it comes to bears uh, than than hunting is. Um, there's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, the few studies that you mentioned very, very clearly, uh, you know, it's not even close. It's a, like a 12, 12 times factor uh, in terms of the revenue that it brings in and in terms of the jobs that it creates. Uh, you know, it's a 10 times multiplier. Um, so to me, it just seems ridiculous that British Columbia has so few areas that are completely cut off from hunting. And yet you talk to the BC government and they go, what are you talking about? You know, we're 35% of the province that you can't hunt grizzlies in. Well, 30% of that doesn't actually have grizzlies in it. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the only areas that are protected from hunting that do have grizzlies are the very few national parks, Glacier and Mount Revelstoke, a couple of the provincial parks. Uh, that are the class A parks and then uh, the Kutsmitin grizzly bear sanctuary. And that's it. Everywhere else there are grizzlies you can hunt. And around Revelstoke is where they're doing some of the, um, the wolf calling now too, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They're, uh, which, which again is just a, a, a ridiculous, um, ridiculously poor management, uh, policy in my mind. Um, this is a caribou herd that basically is gone. Um, they're, it's the same as the South Selkirk's one. Uh, you know, the, the big culprit in all of this is industry. Um, the provincial government has allowed too much logging. 
uh, in these areas uh, is provided access uh, to moose and deer to move into the areas uh, because of all these clear cuts and the roads going in there. And now wolves have an easy access in there. Um, uh, the caribou basically have been doomed in the Revelstoke area for 30, 40 years. And you have to remember, I actually grew up in that area, um, you know, some 40, 40 years ago. And I remember as a teen, uh, 30 years ago, uh, already knowing that the caribou in that area were in trouble in the Montesquies and in the, in just north of Revelstoke up, up Micah area and so on. And yeah, absolutely nothing has been done. I, I remember going back for, for hikes north of Revelstoke 20, 25 years ago and seeing these little signs, you are now entering caribou habitat, you know, and then seeing people snowmobiling in there in the winter and stuff. And you know, just the signs there, oh, you're entering caribou habitat, but you know, don't worry yeah. about it. Well, and that's, I mean, that's, that's just so much yeah. of so many of the issues is the complete lack of enforcement or any actual efforts. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, I think effort is, is the bigger one is that, you know, you, if, if we truly want to have caribou on the landscape and culling wolves is the, is the least of our problem, we need to yeah, deal and they, with. They absolutely know how to fix it. Yeah, yeah. They know how to fix it. Exactly. They're just not willing to do it. And, uh, and so we have to decide as a people, you know, are we, how much are we willing to, to sacrifice if we do want to have caribou survive, woodland caribou survive uh, throughout the country? And this is not just a BC issue. It's Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, even out in Newfoundland, uh, you know, we've got caribou issues. Um, now, I've got two more questions for you, and then I'll let you get back to adventuring um, while I sit here in yeah. the city, quiet and alone. Um this comes from Jess Bell, a pet photographer here in Ontario that I know. And she was asking uh, about uh, favorite gear and choosing composition. Uh, I think the favorite gear one is very interesting myself. I've got, you know, my, my basic, you know, Canon Rebel with one or two lenses. But when I see you and other photographers out there, I mean, you've got a camera lens that's as big as some of the bear cubs you were shooting. Um, and how do you decide, like, A, what to take, and B, sort of, you know, yes. when you decide I'm going to sit here to take pictures of stuff over there, what's that process? Yeah. Um, great questions. Uh, so from a, a gear perspective, I personally make sure that I've got a long lens. So a 400, 500, 600, somewhere in that line. I personally try to get all of my gear aligned in such a manner that, uh, for me, weight is one of the most important considerations. I like to be able to hike a lot with my gear. Now, on some of these trips, obviously, I can't. Like that Ice Grizzlies one, we're hiking a little bit down to the river and picking our spots, and then you're just sitting there. But in general, I like to have light gear so that I can hike a lot and uh, move about a lot on the landscape, um, and also so that I can easily throw stuff into a bag and uh, and get up. Uh, into the air in, uh, in airplanes and helicopters and so on and be well under the weight limits. Um, so for me, I go with a 500 milliliter, millimeter lens, which is um, milliliter, I said there, I think, for a second. <laughs> <laughs> millimeter lens. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not dumping anything into my, uh, my lens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so 500 millimeter uh, F4 lens, which is uh, Canon and Nikon both have uh, sort of their flagship 500 is a 500 F4 uh, big, big lenses. Uh, they're fairly heavy, um, seven pounds, so uh, two and a half, three kilos. Um, 
but uh, you know, it's kind of necessary to be able to let enough light in and to still have enough reach to be able to photograph stuff across the river, for, for instance. And then I also always have uh, a zoom lens right below that that is uh, always ready to go, and I'm, I'm sure Carrie does the same thing. So I've got a either a 70 to 200 or a 100 to 400 ready to go at all times, and usually right on my shoulder, right beside me while I'm... Uh, using the 500 and so you'd mentioned about composition there you know how do you decide what uh, which of the two lenses you're going to use um, you know how much you want to zoom in how much of the landscape you want to include and I think that just comes with experience so I, I often tell people you know if you're you're unsure about that kind of thing just get out there and shoot lots so even if you live in Hamilton go down to the city park and you know find some mallards or uh, you know warblers in the trees or whatever it might be and just practice take shots of stuff try different lenses see what you like um for me personally i love the big lens uh in particular because if i go down to a low f stop down to f4 or f5 in that range i can really blur out the background which really focuses the person the viewer's eye on whatever i'm photographing whether it be a grizzly bear or a grouse all right and Last question, and this this is one of my favorites. This is from a um, uh, former colleague of mine who's a newspaper photographer. Um, I think he now works in a different position, but he uh, he said, I would assume that you have to be still and alone in a spot waiting for the shot. I can imagine that would be very lonely and isolating, and he'd be interested to hear your feelings on being close to giving up on the shot or the situation because it isn't working, and then having it all come together to get an amazing shot. Um, and I think... This, this is great, too, for people who are interested in doing a tour with you or, 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 or uh, with someone else even, um, or even just doing it, like you said, down at the local pond to get shots of a duck. Um, what's that feeling when you're, you're waiting and you're waiting and it doesn't seem to be happening, and then all of a sudden you get it? Yeah, um, great question again. Uh, so first of all, I'll give a little tip for what I do. So as my wife would readily say, I'm not a very patient person in life. I think all of my patience goes into my wildlife photography. Everything else, uh, I, uh, I you know, deal with the road rage and so on, like most people do. <laughs> all the little things that annoy me or irritate me. But uh, when it comes to wildlife, for some reason, I can sit there forever. Uh, I, I don't just necessarily sit there perfectly still. I'm a, I'm a bit of a fidgeter. I... Uh, I am often dressed in full camo, uh, so I, I will wander a little bit if, if the situation allows it. Uh, but, you know, leave my camera where it is, and, uh, and I'll wander off behind and, you know, go look for tracks or stuff and come back. Uh, one of the tricks I use when I'm just sitting there repeatedly for hour after hour, which I do often do, um, is I will uh, have my phone or, or watch with me, and I just go in 15-minute blocks. Um, so I just go, okay, well, I'll just, I'll stay till 9.15 and it'll be, you know, 9.01. And mm-hmm. so then you just, I just try to force myself not to look at my watch or phone for as long as possible. And then, you know, I do look back and I go, oh, Jesus, 9.04, only three minutes, seriously. <laughs> and then you just keep going, you know, and eventually I get to 9.15 and then I go, okay, I'll just do I'll, 15 more minutes, 9.30. And, you know, next thing you know, it's two in the afternoon yeah. and, you know, maybe I'll finally give up. But. That's how I do it in 15 minute blocks and just force myself. Okay, just do another 15 minutes. Do another 15 minutes, and and then when when it does all come together and when something amazing happens, uh, you know, for instance, I sat at a swift fox den 
out on the prairies a couple couple summers ago, and uh, I was there. I got there fairly early in the afternoon, and I was hoping for late evening light, you know, for something great happening. But I wanted to get in, get set up in my blind pretty early so that uh, I didn't get caught by any of the adult foxes. So I got in there and got set up, and uh, you know, sat there for five hours, and nothing happened. And it was literally right as I was about to, you know, I, I forced myself. I said, "Okay, do fifteen more minutes," and you just, and then that's when the the little pups popped up and just brand new little tiny pups and, you know, got probably about 400, 500 shots within a five minute period. And, uh, and, you know, was able to watch them play around and stuff and actually had to sit in the blind at that point. Cause once they're out, I'm not going to get up and leave and scare them away. So uh, I ended up being yeah. in the blind until it was pitch black at that point. But, uh, <laughs> But, you know, at least uh, everything turned out. You know, I didn't disturb the foxes. I got my shots. Uh, my patience was rewarded. Uh, so it was really a perfect scenario all around. And that's what I'm striving for. So that's what that's what I wait and wait and wait hoping for. Um, and I did want to point out, too, if you come on uh, one of my photo tours, usually, usually we're not sitting there just waiting forever for, for something to maybe show up. Uh, usually you're paying good money because I'm picking spots that are, pretty easy to find yeah. wildlife in so <laughs> well i guess that's that's the scouting that you do ahead exactly, of time yeah. right to figure yeah. out who's where and so yeah. on uh, and what's it, what's the reaction then for the the people who come on a tour and uh even if they're only waiting for you know a morning for instance and then do get this you know a shot of a grizzly bear or a wolf or or a moose for the first time how does it feel for them and for you to sort of have created that moment Oh, I feel fantastic, and I think uh, you know, the what's interesting to me is I get people from all walks of life coming on these tours. You know, everything from nurses and teachers and uh, you know, sort of regular um, day job type of people that don't necessarily make big money, all the way up to you know people that are a little more wealthy and are able to afford these trips a little bit better. And yet, everyone from all walks of life, of all political stripes and stuff, everyone has this one thing in common, and that is wildlife photography. And when that spirit bear walks out or we see that wolf up on the hill, um, the excitement is palpable. And it's, you know, not just me, I still get excited at everything, but to see this passion and this excitement in uh, in the other photographers is uh, one of the things I absolutely love about doing tours and stuff. I mean, there's no denying that they make me money and stuff, but there's lots of things in life people could be doing that make money that, uh, you know, I very specifically choose things that I like to do <laughs> that make me money. And, and I like giving uh, tours and doing workshops with people and uh, seeing that excitement and being able to take them out to places and, you know, showing them their first humpback whale or first ice grizzly or whatnot. Uh, I think it's a, tremendously lucky part of my job to be able to do that and be able to see that in other people's eyes and, uh, and you know I've had people cry before when the first spirit bear came walking out and uh, it's pretty special to be able to do to learn more about John's work purchase his art or find out more about his photography or the exposed series visit wildernessprints.com information about his wildlife photography tours can be found at canwildphotographytours.com He's also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's it for this week, everyone. I want to thank John for such an engaging conversation, and all of you for checking us out. 
Remember to follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Defender Radio, Twitter at Defender Radio, and Instagram at Howie Michael to stay up to date on upcoming episodes, contests, and more. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.